0: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
1: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode, you'll hear Anne Thomas... There is this line that goes straight across
2: my nipples As if a magician sawed me in two That's right, I have nipples I even use them on occasion
1: That and more But before that you know, mailing your letters and packages has just got a lot easier thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can mail and ship anything, anywhere, using just your computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. And it's so easy, anyone can do it. Just click, click. Print and mail with stamps.com you can buy and print official us postage right from your desk stamps.com does all the work for you stamps.com even gives you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage for any letter any package any class of mail and setup is easy to do you do it in minutes And you're printing your very own postage. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio. And we love it. And right now, get this special offer when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Steve Gunn. Behind me now, we're calling today's episode Body and Soul. These are three stories told recently at live shows in both New York and Los Angeles. Risk is live every fourth Thursday in New York at the Pit, in Los Angeles at the Nerdmelt Theater. All three stories. Uh, people coming to grips with their physical health. As you uh, might know, I, I, I mentioned last week in the hosting that uh, I gave up pot and booze for a while. <laughs> I'm 10 days in, and I gotta say, I'm already really disappointed, I guess, at the feeling of how. Land it feels, to be a good boy. I'm reading these Buddhist texts, and uh, I don't know, it feels like self-help. It feels sometimes like the goal is just to wash away all your color. But I know that's a story. It might not be a completely true story, or it might be not the whole story, so onward we go. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful Ann Thomas. She's becoming a regular on our show now. But before that, we're going to hear from Andrew Solmson, who told this story at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles a little bit ago. We call it Blessed Burden.
3: July seventeenth, two 2004, was a lovely summer afternoon in Los Angeles. It was a Saturday, and at about 6.30 in the afternoon, I found myself driving over Laurel Canyon Boulevard from the valley to West Hollywood. I was actually headed to the Improv. And I had with me a Happy Meal, which I had purchased at the McDonald's on Victory. And as a fat guy, I love a Happy Meal because it's just the right amount of food for a snack. And when it's over, I have something to play with besides my shame. (laughs) But on my way up Laurel Canyon, I had to stop short and the cheeseburger, still wrapped, fell from the passenger seat onto the floorboards of the car. So I took a right on Mulholland and then took another right on a little side street there called Mulholland Terrace. I knew it well. I have computer consulting clients who live there, I have friends who live there. It's just a little side street in the Hollywood Hills. I parked my car in a little turnaround, and I opened my driver's side door so that I could lean the other way to get the cheeseburger, and I took advantage of that opportunity to clean the car up a little bit. What I realized as I opened my door was that there was a man behind the gate of his house that fronted on the turnaround, and he was shirtless wearing cocky shorts and boat shoes, short, spiky hair, and he had a garden hose in his hands, a big one, and he was spraying his face with water. Ah! And I thought it was unusual, but it was a hot day, and he's in his own house, and he's entitled. (laughs) Until he started arcing the water up over his gate and into the open door of my car. And even that, I at the time, thought was just a mistake, and so I drove further down Mulholland Terrace, away from his gate. And he followed me along his property line and kept spraying water in my car. And so I yelled something witty like, hey, quit spraying water in my car. And three seconds later, 200 pounds of six foot wet, glittery eyed guy was trying to pull me out of my car. I have a little gravity on my side in that situation. So instead, he jumped through the open door of my car and just started wailing on me with his fists around the head, neck, and shoulders. He was really getting me pretty good. And uh, I started to yell. I started to yell, help, call 911. Help, call 911. And he didn't like me yelling. So he put his hand over my nose and mouth and I couldn't breathe. So I bit him. And he rears back And he looks at me and he says, you bite me, I bite you. And he leans down and he bites my nose. Quite hard, I still have the scar. And at that point, I kind of realized things were going south. (laughs) And so I took my foot off the brake. The car was still in gear. I didn't want to go blind into Mulholland because I thought I'd get hit by a car, but at that point it seemed like a decent option. So... I started to roll the car and that really upset him and he started to pound even harder on me. I yelled, why are you doing this? I'm not hurting you. I'm not hurting you. And he kind of came to his senses and he got out of my car and I took advantage of that moment to hurry off down the street and around the corner where I locked myself in my car and I called 911. Waited on hold for seven minutes because it's Los Angeles. And finally, the fire department, and then the police arrived to clean me up. And I was explaining to them what had happened when a woman came running down the street. She had become aware of the police activity. She thought maybe there had been an accident. But she came running down the street to yell to the police that were there that somebody had broken into a house up the street, and it was my guy. He had gone further up the street to a house where he had beef, broken in through their sliding glass door, and confronted the people in the house. Fortunately, there was more than one of them, and they had access to some pieces of firewood, and they tuned him up pretty good. So the police ended up bringing me up the street to identify him, which I did. And then they put him in the ambulance they called for me, sent him off to Cedar sinai where, from what I understand, he beat up a nurse. Anyway, I pressed charges, and I sued him he was a rich guy ended up winning a little bit of money and he ended up doing about a year and a half in jail and I learned some things the first thing I learned was that the house he had come out of to beat me up was the house where Rick James and his wife did all that horrible stuff to the woman they kidnapped in the 90s that got Rick James thrown in jail my guy owned that house and had rented it to Rick James And only in Los Angeles does your meth-crazed attacker have better industry connections than you. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing I learned was a new respect for the women I've dated. Because the whole thing took about four minutes. And I had no idea how long four minutes with a guy on top of you could feel. (laughs) (laughs) And the third thing I learned was that when some horrible act of random violence happens to you, and people find out about it, the first thing that happens is that people want to tell you their story of horrible random violence, and two weeks after it happened, with fresh stitches in my head and two black eyes, I really wasn't into it. But I was at a client's house, and she asked me what had happened, and I explained. And then she sits me down and proceeds to tell me for 10 or 15 minutes, in agonizing detail, the story of her rape. And you know what you can't do, even if you really don't want to hear it, is interrupt someone's rape story. (laughs) Now, if this was a stand-up show, that's where I'd end it. But it's not. It's risk. So I'm gonna tell you about some more stuff I learned. About a year after the incident, I learned that I had gotten a hernia. I remember very vividly that feeling of tearing in my abdomen after the event. And when the doctors told me I had a ventral hernia, I knew exactly where I had gotten And they said, well, it's minor. And if you lose some weight, the operation to repair it will go better and have a better chance of success. And I'm a 400-pound guy. I'm always on the verge of losing weight. (laughs) So I decided to wait. Time goes by, I gain weight, I lose it. I got up to about 500 pounds at 1.520. Got down to 400 again. And in May of last year, I started to have some episodes of real pain, just three days of not being able to leave my house. And so I dragged myself to the ER and they did a CT scan. And this very severe blonde lady doctor came into my room and she said, Mr. Salmson. You have a very impressive hernia. And it had gotten worse, much worse. How much worse we didn't know until they opened me up. They scheduled an operation, told me that it was going to take three hours and that I'd be in the hospital for three days. Ended up taking eight hours. And I was in the hospital for a week. And it turns out that about 50% of my large intestine and about 80% of my small intestine had worked its way through this two-inch hole in my abdominal wall and was just resting under my skin. I now have a divot here where it used to be. And they put all that stuff back inside me. And it's not like there was a hole waiting for it. I was tight. I was tight as a drum. And I didn't care about food at all. I've been 300 pounds since I was a little kid. And for the first time in my life, I was really completely free of any craving for food. I was 500 pounds. And what that means is that you can eat even when you are painfully full. And for the first time in my life, I didn't care about food. It just, it just didn't matter to me. And so I learned something there, which was that there was something up with my stomach. And that what I had blamed for years on my inability to control myself around cheeseburgers, was really the result of something physically wrong with me. And the stomach stretched out the area. I lost more weight. The stomach stretched out. And so that freedom went away. And so now, as a result of all this, I'm going to have bariatric surgery. They're going to permanently alter my stomach, which I am very happy about because being free of this for the rest of my life is something I can really live with. But the other thing that happened is that when I lost the weight, it all kind of settled to the bottom, and it became this morass of fluid and infection. And I've been in and out of the hospital for the last year or so. And so as part of that operation where they make my stomach smaller, they're literally going to cut this entire panis of fat And tissue off of me, and I will come out of the hospital sixty pounds lighter than I went in. And I can't fucking wait. Wish me luck, B.
4: Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. The fact that you're here is because you're goddamn stars. How many times do we have to put that in your head? You're a star. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not. i had a nickel for every time somebody said to me, you can't become a star as a drag queen. I have a million billion dollars i know what i am i don't forget who i am and that's true for all of you never forget everybody's gonna tell you no you can't do it you can't do it no you can't do it because they're projecting their negativity onto you you me or nobody is gonna hit as hard as life but it ain't about how hard you hit it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward how much you can take and keep moving forward that's how winning is done. Oh, they're saying bad things about me. Own it, own it. And you, you, get to, you get to understand that, oh, that wasn't me. That was them. And then you own it. Then you go, oh. And, and you know what? Every time that happens to you in life, the time it takes for you to catch yourself gets shorter. And shorter. Mm. Will they go away? No. That self-doubt doesn't go away? Doesn't go away. And not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that! Now, we can't tell you this. You have to walk through the fire. You walk through the fire, and then you own it and you go, Come for me, bitches. All the scab- Come for <laughs> me.
2: Most people look at me and think, Oh, you poor thing. You can't walk. I know this, because they tell me to my face. (laughs) But walking is the least of my problems. I mean, I got a wheelchair to compensate for that. I was in a car accident when I was 18, and I'm paralyzed, so my big problem is lack of sensation. There is this line that goes straight across my nipples as if a magician sawed me in two. That's right, I have nipples. I even use them on occasion. (laughs) And this line, it breaks where I go from sensation to no sensation. I have dropped a stone bookend on my foot resulting in a massive bruise and not felt a thing. I've gotten second-degree burns on my legs from car heaters. And once, while I was taking a bath, I turned the cold water off first and then the hot water. And when I went to dry my ankles, hunks of flesh came off on the towel. Yeah, that's about how I felt. I wanted to throw up like I was in some B-grade horror movie, okay? But I learned to get over those hazards. And the biggest problem I have now is wounds on my butt. If I fall, I split the skin. If I do a sloppy transfer in and out of the wheelchair, I scrape my ass on the wheels. Or if I just sit too long, I'll get a pressure sore. And when I get a wound on my butt, my life stops. Forget traveling the world, whitewater rafting, scuba diving, skiing. I have to lay down on my stomach because the only way a butt wound will heal is if you do not sit on it. And if I cannot sit, I cannot do anything. So I have this kind of love-hate relationship with my body. I love it when it works. I hate it when it doesn't. So I do things to avoid wounds. I have a futon bed in my office. I work on the computer lying down. I hold meetings lying down. I watch TV lying down. When I go out, if I can, I put my legs up and I tip to my side so I can take all the pressure off of my butt. And I do this so I can sit which means I can be independent, but I resent having to constantly save my ass by getting off of my ass, and it's a pain in the ass, because in order to have any fun in the world, I have to sit on my ass, and the least smallest wrong decision can kick my ass, like when I took a driving vacation to Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama. At the end of the trip, 10 days, I start sweating across that brake line. Remember the nipples and the line and the, the braking and the no sensation. And I have to pull my pants down and I get on the bed and I pull out a mirror because sweating is my body's singular way of telling me something is wrong, but I have to hunt for it. So I use the mirror and the compact and I, I look and then I find... At the base of my spine, on my sacrum, this giant Krakatoa-sized zit, like worse than any teenage dream or nightmare you've ever had, right? And it's red, and it's angry, and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to the ER. And the local southern ER doc said, honey, you've got yourself a trucker's boil. <gasps> Sit, sitting behind the wheel all that time, blocking a pore, catching some bacteria in there. You've got an infection. But I'll just give you some oral antibiotics. You're going to be fine. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Well, I get home, and the sweating comes back. So I go see my regular doctor, and he says, oh, this infection, it's gotten worse. It's, it's gone to the bone.
0: I'm like, oh.
2: I'm going to send you home. I'm going to put you on IV antibiotics, and we're going to hope that this wound is going to heal from the inside out. And I'm like, shit, that's going to take weeks. But you know the deal. you got to sit as little as possible. And I'm going to put a wound vac on you. And that's going to help the tissue come together, as well as some IV antibiotics. Well, he shows me the wound vac. It's the size of a toaster, Okay? It makes a constant sucking sound strapped to my body. And that sound? is all my life plans literally being sucked out my ass. (laughs) So for weeks, I'm at home on my stomach and my elbows. I watch entire TV series, Breaking Bad, Rome, Foil's War, whatever I can do. I pay somebody to bring me food so I don't have to sit in order to cook. And my big thrill is that I get to go to the wound clinic once a week. And they take a sterile Q-tip and they stick it in there and measure the wound in centimeters. Now, it starts off as six centimeters. I'm like, OK, you know, I think I can make that heal. And then several weeks later, it's three centimeters. And I'm like, hot damn, I'm going to be able to use my Jason Moraz tickets.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and then suddenly, it's 10 centimeters. And the doctor says, the infection's not resolving. Uh, I'm going to put you on two additional IV antibiotics. Each one comes with its own injection device and its own whirling noise. So now I am a one-woman medical band with three devices strapped to my body, crisscrossed like Mexican bandoleros. (laughs) Only it's not bullets, it's antibiotics. And I feel like my body, is like holding me back, like like it's the enemy preventing me from living fully, like it's betraying me every time I turn my back. So I'm back on the bed, I give away those Jason Mraz tickets, I miss out on some killer parties, but then I have to give up my trip to Yosemite, but I planned the year before. After 10 weeks stuck at home, the doctor says, It's not healing. We're going to have to surgically close this. So now I'm on my stomach in the hospital. And I'm covered with blankets from the surgery this morning because it's so cold in there. But now, hours later, I'm hot and I feel smothered. So I call the nurse. And she comes in and she lifts up a blanket. And then she says, I'll be right back. I don't think anything of it until... Six members of my surgical team show up in my room. Uh, we're just gonna take a look at your wound, okay? Okay. I hear tape being pulled away. But, you know, I'm face down, facing forward. I can't feel or see what they're doing. I can't even see their feet behind me, but I can hear. So they speak softly, and I listen harder. (laughs) Look there. We need to close that off. Someone go down to the operating room and bring back sutures and needles. Well, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> and a few minutes later, get the magnification device. They can't see what they're doing. What is going on back there? And then move her muscle out of the way. I'm like, holy shit, they're operating on me right here, right now, in my room. Not real sterile. No anesthesia. Thank goodness I can't feel. (laughs) Of course, if I could, I wouldn't be here, but something must be seriously wrong. I hope they can fix it. What if they can't fix it? What if I can't sit again? Forget traveling. Forget scuba diving. I may not ever be able to go to a movie or a restaurant. I may be stuck at home or in a home the rest of my life. Oh, God, I hope they can fix this. And then about 20 minutes later, I hear the resident say, we need to do a needle count. And I'm like, that's a really good idea. (laughs) No extra needles, please. But it also means they're closing me up. After much tape and gauze, the resident leans down next to me and he says, "When we did the surgery this morning, we nicked a vein, but we fixed it. You're going to be all right, so don't worry." And I am relieved. They all leave and the nurse comes back in and she says, "Um, you're going to get a new bed." All right. So they wheel me out into the hallway in the bed so I can make the switch, and I smell iron in the air. And I look down, and there is a pile of bloody cotton blankets. Gigantic, saturated sanitary napkins for a Bard of Godzilla or something. <laughs> but then I think, wait a minute, those are the cotton blankets I asked the nurse to remove because I was too hot. And then it hit me. I was bleeding out. I lost enough blood to soak four blankets. I bled so much that I stained a industrial hospital mattress beyond redemption. And then I think, wow, what an amazing body I have. (laughs) 40 years without a central nervous system time and again can bleed copious amounts of blood <laughs> and it endures and I had a new kind of break line I break way past ever hating my body and I'm like not wasting another second thinking anything but love for this body because I only get one body in this lifetime and to condemn that body is ridiculous so now I pamper my body (laughs) I lay down all the time so I can sit when it counts like right now (laughs) and so when people say to me now oh you poor thing you can't walk I think oh if only you could see what an amazing body I have it takes a licking so I can keep on sitting and kick ass in the years to come
1: This is Risk. This is Junius Mavant behind me now. I hope I'm not massacring that name. And that was Ann Thomas we just heard. Now, keep in mind that Risk is coming to Albuquerque on November 13th. We're appearing at the festival called Pornotopia on the 4th of December. We'll be in Minneapolis. My first time ever coming to Minneapolis. Um, We're still taking pitches for that show. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. The theme for the Minneapolis show is dangerous. So pitch us your dangerous stories. Then on the... What is it? Is it... Fuck! The 12th! The 12th of December, we're in Seattle! And the theme that night is Fucked Up! So pitch us your fucked up stories, folks from Seattle. We are at, uh, you know, risk-show.com slash submissions. You might be able to be a part of... Of that show. And now, our final story for this episode. This is comedian Paul Sebus, who told this one at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. We call it My Lifeline.
5: Hey guys! Um, I was born with a genetic condition called Alport syndrome. Uh, Alport's is a very complicated thing. It's very difficult to explain, but the gist of it is basically just that uh, whereas most people are born with two functioning kidneys, I was born with two balls of garbage. <laughs> That's what I had. And they just started out bad and got worse from there. I was diagnosed with this condition when I was very young, I was about five years old. The doctors found it and they said, you know what, there is not anything really that can be done about this, we just have to monitor your kidney function over time, eventually it will decrease to the point where you have to go on dialysis and then you have to have a transplant. And that is a lot to lay on a five-year-old and I think it probably helped that I had no idea what any of those words meant. (laughs) I just knew that transplant sounded a lot like transformers, so I was completely (laughs) cool with that. That sounded great. Oddly, it really didn't affect my childhood that much. I was a normal, healthy kid. I didn't have to live in a bubble or anything. I wasn't like the weird, sick kid. Just once a year, I would go into the hospital, Uh, I'd pee in a cup, they'd draw some blood, they'd give me a Snoopy band-aid, and they'd look at some tests and go, "Eh, your kidneys are okay, not great, come back next year. And that's all it was, really, for most of my life, up until my early 20s. When I was about 21, went into the hospital, peed in a cup, got some blood drawn. Turns out, after a certain age, they're very stingy with the Snoopy Uh, (laughs) band-aids. Doesn't hurt to ask. Uh, but that year, instead of like, mm, not great, but okay, see you next year, what I got was, we need to talk. Obviously never a good thing in any situation. And yeah, the doctor said, well, this is it. This is, this is the day uh, your kidney function has decreased to the point where we need to put you on dialysis, and we need to get you a kidney transplant. If you need a kidney transplant, There are a couple of ways uh, that you can go about doing that. One, the best way, is what's called a live donor. And that's what it sounds like. If you have a, a family member, ideally, somebody who's a close genetic match to you, they can give you one of their kidneys. Most people have two. You only need one. It's a pretty good system, actually. The problem is, as I said, the reason I had to have a transplant in the first place is because of a genetic condition. So replacing... One of my garbage kidneys with one of my family's slightly less garbage kidneys is not going to help anything at all. So that left me with a couple of just a couple of options. One, black market. <laughs> couple things about the black market. Uh, first of all, it's illegal. Apparently, I don't know if you knew that. Uh, second of all, very hard to find. Um, <laughs> It is not like a farmer's market. They, like they don't put up flyers in the, the fair trade coffee shop, you know, like second Sunday of the month in the park by the carousel. It's a lot trickier than that. So what that left me with was the last option, and this is what most people end up doing, and that's called a cadaveric donor. Cadaveric, as in cadaver, as in a dead person. And that's what happens if you don't have a live donor. You go on a list with all the people in your area of the country who need a kidney transplant and you wait. And what you are waiting for is you are waiting for somebody to die. And that is a very weird thing to think about. That somewhere out there, probably not too far away, there is a perfectly normal, healthy stranger and someday something terrible is going to happen to them and that will be the best thing that ever happened to you. If anybody here is an organ donor, like if you check that box and you have that sticker on your license, uh, first of all, thank you so much for doing that. I I really wish more people would. But second of all, you should know that if you leave here tonight and you are hit by a bus crossing sunset, somebody will get a phone call about that that will make them happier than you can possibly imagine. (laughs) And that's what the transplant waiting list is. You are waiting for somebody to have the worst day of their life so that you can have the best day of yours. And it's very bizarre, which is why all of the language of the process is sort of designed to distract you from that fact. It's all very neutral and very sterile. Obviously, they don't say, well, we're waiting on some people to die so you can get your kidney. It's you're just on the list. Hey, you're on the list. You're moving up the list. You're right near the top of the list. You know, nobody says, good news, all we need is one rainstorm, somebody will eat it on a motorcycle, (laughs) and you'll be home free. That's all the subtext. You know, there's just a lot of talk about your kidney. When you get your kidney, everything's going to be great. Once you get your kidney, it's going to be fine. Obviously, ignoring the fact that at that moment, your kidney is out there somewhere... (laughs) You know, being used by somebody else to live, (laughs) which is weird. And the thing is, though, after a little bit of time on the list, this sort of sterile language, it helps. It does sort of make you forget this idea that maybe it's a little bit creepy that I'm waiting for somebody to die. What's more, though, I found after a few years of being on the list, I stopped giving a shit if it was creepy or not. As far as I was concerned, motherfuckers were not dying fast enough. (laughs) And part of this was because, as I alluded to, the whole time I was waiting for a transplant, I was on dialysis. And dialysis is an incredibly technical, complicated process. I, I don't have nearly enough time to get into exactly how it works, but basically what it is, is I had a machine that I would have to plug myself into every night and it would do the job that my kidneys would have done if they weren't garbage. And this machine is a miracle of modern medicine and technology. It is absolutely unbelievable. I have an uncle who I never met who died in the early 60s from my same condition who would have lived if he had had this machine. This was literally the only thing keeping me alive. And I say that just so that I can then emphasize that being on dialysis fucking sucks. It is the worst. It is painful, it is time consuming, it is exhausting, just draining in every sense of the word. So after a few years of being on dialysis, and I was on what is considered to be the easier type of dialysis, yeah, great. Let's let's get some dying going here. I want to move up that list. That is what I am waiting for. I think most people have been in a position at some point in their life where they just they wanted something so bad, you know, that they could taste it. And I think most people here have probably even said that phrase, you know, like, "Oh, I want this so bad, I would kill for it." <laughs> I think there are fewer people probably who have actually been in a situation where You know what? Killing somebody might actually help. Uh, A little murder would actually get this ball rolling a bit. That, uh, I don't know, I think probably just people waiting for organ transplants and then, like, if for some reason your life is like a Game of Thrones power struggle of some sort. Uh, In which case, please come find me after the show because I want to hang out with you. That sounds awesome. Um, but yeah, I was, I was on dialysis for five years. And by the time I got my phone call, I was ready. And that phone call came and it's, it's, it's like an iPhone was on back order or something. you know? It's like, hey, your new kidney's in. Come on down. Pick it up. And it's like, great. I have been waiting for this. And then you show up. I showed up at the hospital. I I didn't care whose kidney it was. And that was fine with the doctors because the whole process is actually that they try to keep as much information from you about the donor as possible. They don't tell you anything. The only things I was told is that the donor was a girl who was younger than me. That's literally all they said. Uh, I was 24 at the time. I think about that now, and my first thought is just that that girl was tragically young. At the time, though, I was ready for my kidney. You know, this is the best day of my life. And that's probably all I ever would have thought about it, but the next, not the next day, but a couple days after my transplant, there was an article in the local paper. High school girl at a high school track meet has an undiagnosed heart condition. Something happens, she's rushed to a nearby hospital, the same hospital where we knew the kidney was coming from, and she doesn't make it. So suddenly, this stranger that I had been waiting on to die for five years, that this whole system had been set up to distract me from, suddenly this person is real. And I, there's a name, And she has a face, and friends, and a family. And I have her kidney. And I'll never know for 100% certain that this girl was my donor. I mean, the timeline matches the few facts I have line up, but I will never know for 100% sure. And what I've realized over the last few years is that... I like believing that it's her. I like having that name, and I like having that face, and I like knowing that even though I have her kidney, that this is my kidney now, it wasn't always. You know, and that it was not just a lump of veins and membranes that got moved from one person to another. This is part of a person who had a life and who had a a story. And now that story continues on with me. And I am eternally grateful to that girl and to her family and to anyone else who has the strength and and the foresight and the generosity to take the worst day of their life and turn that into the best day of somebody else's. And that's my story. Thank you guys. Please be an organ donor.
1: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Kevin Morby behind me now, and we just heard from comedian Paul Sebus. Don't forget that we also teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We do uh, workshops on a regular basis in New York and Los Angeles. We do corporate workshops for staffs of businesses. We even have an online class called Storytelling for Business that you can take in your own time, a video lecture course. So find out more about all of that at thestorystudio.org. Remember, it's not too late to contact your local Public radio station or the public radio stations in nearby states, and tell them that at prx.org, Risk has a wonderful holiday special. It's, you know, a cleaned up, so it's not, uh, you know, they can play it on public radio. It's five wonderful stories. So contact your local public radio station. Let them know that they should be playing Risk this holiday season. And finally don't forget if you love what we do we dearly dearly rely on the financial contributions of our fans risk is a proud member of the maximum fun network of podcasts so many wonderful podcasts are a part of maximum fun and we're all listener supported so go to maximumfun.org/donate and become a member Or make a one-time contribution and be sure to earmark it for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.